Hello and welcome to IR Thinker, where international affairs are discussed. I'm Martin Zubko. Today we're going to speak about social media, communication, radicalization, and how all those elements uh, influence the emerging sphere or emerging field of radicalization, extremism, and terrorism in the world, but mainly in the United States. My guest today and expert in the field is Gordon L. Young. Hello, Gordon. Hello, Martin. Thank you for having me. Dr. Gordon L. Young is a professor of speech communication and dean of faculty at Kingsborough Community College, City University of New York. His research focuses on intercultural communication and postcolonialism, within popular culture and critical perspectives on education, culture, identity, gender, class, and sexuality. I invited Gordon due to his great knowledge about social media in the United States, about how the speech works, how the elements of the speech influence the society, and especially radicalization and extremism, which are emerging in the United States. So we divided this interview into three sections, and we'll start with the first one, which is about recruitment, radicalization, and propaganda. So let's jump in. And the first question, Gordon, I'm interested in the social media in the recruitment process, what they use, what radicals, what extremists or terrorists they use in social media to recruit people. And we know that social media are changing because there is a new technology, new algorithms. So how is this influencing all that process? Thank you for having me, Martin. So first to start, um, you know, one, one important thing to point out is that for terror and extremist organizations online, they have what are called, you know, some have what are called media mujahideen or jihadi group supporters who share propaganda on social media. And this can really blur the line between content producer and audience because it isn't necessarily a leader sharing it, it's being shared at the grassroots level. And I, I want to say at this point, very carefully, I want to make a caveat at this point that even though I just mentioned Mujahideen and Jihad, you know, which are Middle East and North African identified uh, language, um, I want to be careful to say that terror and extremism comes from everywhere, not just the Middle East and North African region. So we don't want to generalize. Um, but so for instance, you know, a terror promoter, uh, Mr. or Mrs. X, we could call them, uh, might not be influential within Joe Smith's personal friendship network, but getting Jane or Joe Smith to share the video on their network is gonna change the way it's seen. And it's gonna to contribute to the meaning of that video. So it's potential for persuasion among that group is gonna grow. And I, you know, when I talk about this, I talk about how one time I shared, uh, for instance, in my own um, social media platform, I shared a parody news article. I have lots of Australian friends and I shared a news article to, to make them laugh about how Australians have all these gripes with Canadians. It was a, it was a parody news site that was online with The Onion, the United States parody news site. And uh, my, uh, my Australian friends got a great laugh out of it. Uh, but some of my friends who know me only through serious postings on social media started questioning, are there real cultural divides here, right? So, um, you know, it added to the meaning of the text, right? Journalists have learned this lesson because, you know, learn, journalists have long learned to post disclaimers on their sites because, you know, as they repost and retweet uh, content for stories they've not checked, right? they found that audience was, audiences were accepting these wholeheartedly, 
accepting the content because it was posted by a journalist and the reputation of that journalist was influencing the audience. You know, Aristotle might call it ethos, right? The ethos, the uh, reputation of the speaker influences how the content's received. And so they've learned to start, you know, disclaiming, I've not read, I've not fact-checked this article. Um, but as we see the, the, the reposting and retweeting of content, the lines between content producer and content uh, consumer are really blurring, right? Anytime, you know, something's retweeted, you could argue that the, the consumer is participating in the production of that in some way. Uh, similarly, the, the feedback, the, the language that is, is posted in comments, that's also helping to construct the meaning and, and sort of in some ways, you know, shape the um, reliability of the information in some people's minds. So um, another way that um, terror and extremist organizations are, are adapting is that closing one platform, one, one extremist site, doesn't stop the, the, the terrorist network, right? The network's gonna reconfigure itself, right? You know, some people call it, uh, uh, two researchers, Fisher, Sergio, called it the swarm cast, right? Like how swarms of bees and birds, you know, if, if uh, one, of their, one of their flock falls out, they just reconfigure themselves and their formations mid-flight. And we see this with the way terrorist organizations organized. So if you were to shoot one bird, heaven forbid, from the flock, um, the flock would reconfigure itself, right? We also see things like Twitter storming and tweet storming where you know, groups will like or share hashtag content because it causes it to become a global trend, right? So uh, you know, versus the traditional broadcast where there's a message coming from one place, you have messages coming from all over the world, right? Some, you know, some also talk about something called net war, which is when you have uh, small individual actors all over the world network together, right? And they're waging low level crime or terror uh, in their individual areas, right? As a way for uh, terrorists to act in a decentralized way. So they're really moving away from centralization, I guess is what I'm trying to get at. But I have to say at this point too, that some of these techniques are also used in very pro-social ways for positive movements. For instance, we look at the events of the Arab Spring, right? Or the Me Too movement, you know, you could, you could forge an argument too that these are net war or um, swarm casting, right? Where you have a bunch of individual actors with, uh, you know, valid, valid grievances that want to get those out on a global stage and they use this uh, swarm casting, Twitter storming or net war to sort of get that across. But you also see it used by figures historically like Osama bin Laden who had a network of terror cells, right? Other things we see are things called um, botnets, right? When you have a terror group infect a group of computers with malicious software, so it sends out their messaging without the, usually without the users knowing. It's happened to me. I know it's happened to many of my colleagues you know, um, Homeland Security in the U.S. has been looking at this in terms of elections from 2016 on and how that, how, how this kind of bot network may have influenced the outcomes of elections. Um, you also see things like uh, click farming or like farming, where, where, where low-paid individuals are used to click or, or like en masse just some online content, like uh, what has been called China's 50 cent army where, you know, it's actually in a book by a man named Rong Bing Han. Uh, he writes this book called uh, Contesting Cyberspace in China, and he talks about this massive uh, 50 cent army where uh, China, the Chinese government actually pays individuals to click or like pro-government or pro-regime content because they know they'll never stop the internet at large, but they can also maybe think they can also sway it uh, within their own uh, neighborhoods. A couple other things, um, hashtag hijacking 
when you take a positive hashtag that's pro-social and a, a terror group might attach terror content to that to reach you know a large mass group because you know a positive hashtag is going to reach a large group or you know a repost a repost storm when you have something pulled down and then a network of users just engages in mass reposting of it you know it could be a botnet right so in in the communication that I study, I started out cutting my teeth on interpersonal two-person communication and, you know, uh, that type of communication. We always had this concept of permanence, this idea that if you put a message out into the world, you know, to another person, uh, it never goes away. You can never reverse it. You know, it's it's permanent. It's irreversible. But even more so with social media, right? In, in the case of two-person relationships, you were the other person, remember, but we, we no longer have the ability to pull back messages. We can no longer be guaranteed that a message has ever been erased. And that's, that's a, a scary thing in some ways. You know, if you look at the Christchurch mosque attacks in 2019, where, you know, over 50 people were, were, were shot and killed at two mosques in New Zealand, and, you know, over, over 30 people were uh, injured. My numbers might be a little off, but, um, you know, it's been impossible to remove content like that, is, even though it is disturbing, disturbing content filmed by the shooter, it's been impossible to remove that from online. Uh, no matter, you know, despite di very diligent attempts by social media companies and other agencies. So it's, uh, you know, it's like a game of whack-a-mole. We have this carnival game and probably we have it all over the world where you try to hit a mole as it pops up from a hole at a carnival. And that's kind of like uh, what terror groups are doing online. You, you hit one mole and another one pops up somewhere else. Gordon, may I ask you, uh you are expert on speech and, and all those uh, signs behind, as I say. What is the quality of messages posted by those groups? I mean, do we have mostly simple sentences with clear messages, or we have sort of more sophisticated, let's say, even metaphorical messages? What's your opinion about that? Mm -hmm. No, it, it can be anything from the, the mundane to the complex, right? Um, one, of the, one of the things that we see is that uh, terror organizations are meeting um, potential recruits where they live, right? So, you know, amongst young men um, all over the world, video gaming, online gaming, mass gaming is is a, is a big phenomenon, right? So you see uh, terror groups producing very high quality videos, very high quality, um, very very high quality productions, right? That actually mimic um, some. Uh, high fidelity, high high uh, resolution game game uh, perspectives. Where you know, for instance, like a game like Call of Duty, where I haven't played it personally, but I know I've seen simulations of it. Where you know the the actual player is playing from a, a soldier point of view, or a shooter, or a killer point of view, and they're actually moving through a space in real time and trying to uh, you know execute. You see that videos produced by terrorist organizations are emulating these types of productions. Or they have, you know, uh, very sort of, um, very sort of sophisticated online publications that are that are hyperlinked and sort of um, the, the content actually, you know, is not just text content, but it actually is multimedia. It's you know, Internet 2.0, right down to the very grassroots roots sort of, um, you know, sort of um, work that's done by individual actors who may not maybe don't have all the tools. So it's uh, it's a range. It's a range. Can you analyze or can you tell us a little bit about the effectiveness of counter narratives on social media and combating terrorism, extremism, radicalization? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a question that a lot of different uh, 
government organizations, you know, social media organizations have looked at. You know, um, I know there's a UN uh, Office of Counter Counterterrorism, and they've sought to really look at, the, you know, how someone becomes radicalized, right? And what's what's the trajectory that someone goes on, and how do we how do we break that down? You know, how do we analyze that? You know, with one goal of that being, you know, the construction of counter narratives. With that said, you know, we are talking about counter narratives, but another goal I'll I'll sort of put in the background is. You know, another goal is, you know, um, getting individuals to break away and disengage, you know, um, you know, we want to, you know, want to combat the, the propaganda, but we also want to sort of splinter the groups as well, right? We want to sort of reintegrate individuals that are on the fringe, you know, that are most susceptible to counter counter narratives and bring them back into um, pro-social society, right? So the UN talks about a trajectory being like a trash. You know how the process works attraction engagement participation and then you see some you know very quickly become disengaged but you know there's no outlet and then uh you know organizations suggest you know um governmental organizations suggest you know providing a means for reintegration right u.s scholars you know will argue a lot of u.s scholars that i've read will argue that you know counter propaganda counter narrative in its many forms has been unsuccessful um European organizations like the EU Parliament and their studies of uh, counter narratives, they suggest that you know they're a little more cautious in their approach, and they suggest, which is probably a better way to look at it, that we just lack data. We can't just say that um, the efforts have been unsuccessful, but we just haven't significantly studied it enough. We need to look at it more in depth and figure out, you know, are these efforts successful? You know, as of right now, I couldn't call it off the top of my head, but I, I haven't seen many studies that are really in depth um, jumped into, you know, are these counter efforts successful, like long term in depth studies? I think there are some, but I, I think the valid, the critique of the EU problem and you know, their, their study group is correct. I think there is more study needed. I don't think we should just, um, we should just uh, reject it out, out of hand and say it hasn't been effective until we actually see proof that it hasn't. Um, you know, but the, the narratives, the counter narratives that do get produced, the ones that do try to, to, to counter terrorist activity or ones that attempt to show reality, right? Because violent extremist organizations, terror organizations really want to market themselves through their glossy media content, right? Videos that show sophisticated attacks and organizational legitimacy, like their, their organizations are being recognized on a world scale uh, and being uh, respected in some ways, you know, for the terror that they can invoke on a world scale. Um, you know, these are the types of things that we want to sort of strike at. And, and sort of countering those, you know, I know there have been some um, French campaigns against terror that have tried to depict that, you know, if you are lured away and you do end up in one of these networks, you'll, you know, you'll die a, a cold and lonely death somewhere remote where you're alone and you have no family around you, sort of thing, very stark sort of uh, messaging. And it's not just, you know, um, countering, this is, the, we're using techniques that we've seen other movements use, you know, from health movements, right? Uh, anti-smoking campaigns, you know, that show physical degradation, you know, physical disintegration and then eventual death, right? you know, inevitable death even. Or the real beauty movement among uh, within the feminist movement showing how women's bodies, especially their faces, are, are produced and manipulated and then deconstructing that and showing how, you know, behind all the digital manipulation, there's a very different reality, right? And that's what these counter-narratives try to do, right? Um, 
One of the things though that makes, I, I think would contribute to the success of counter narratives is if there's like a, a, a un, more unified voice. You know, we've, in this area, we talk a lot about how effective our partnerships between social media companies and government organizations and non-government organizations. Uh, but the problem is, you know, um, you know, there are organizations like this, you know, like, like the Global Internet Forum to Counter Terrorism has an operating board made up of members of companies like Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and has an independent advisory committee with representatives from civil society, you know, government, intergovernmental organizations. And a lot of experts look at the work that this organization does and says, you know, it's, it's really moving in the right direction, but companies need to uphold international laws on things like uh, terrorist funding, exploitation of children, right? In the same way that you, we see social media's act when it comes to things like, such as uh, the sexual exploitation of children, right? Um, another, another counter narrative approach would be, for instance, uh, infiltrating and infecting and studying these, uh, these terrorist organizations, you know, having counterterrorism agents infiltrate to get the information we need to shut down things that are essential to their recruiting, like their financial operations, right? So we can disrupt their financial transactions or getting someone to uh, infiltrate in order to infect where, you know, you get a counter agent to, to spread counter narratives that actually, you know, sort of break down the psychology that is used to control followers, right? And we can't ignore uh, the, the role that that uh, communities, cultural communities can play in this, right? I said at the very beginning of my talk that I gave the caveat of we, we can't locate all of terrorism within Middle East and North Africa, right? So we similarly also shouldn't indict any cultural group of people for being uh, the main source of terrorism. Otherwise, we run the risk of, you know, really being short-sighted on this. Um, but a lot of counter-narrative writing talks about, you know, engaging peaceful, pro-social, cultural communities. For instance, you know, around the world, we, you know, we have an abundance of, you know, peaceful and pro-social uh, Muslim communities, and they should be engaged. You know, individuals in those communities can help with the, uh, perhaps help and want to help with the counter-narrative work, you know, and they can help inform this work and make sure that it's successful or help to ensure that it's successful. And, it, and this falls in line with the, the recommendations of experts that talk about when you do this work, choosing reputable figures who have cultural uh, knowledge and cultural expertise and to be able to do it. And, um, you know, at the same time, I would say, you know, this should be one, this counter narrative approach, you want to several techniques, right? We would never put all of our eggs in one basket because the idea is that we should use a multifaceted approach and that this is just one tool in a multifaceted tool repertoire that we continually revisit, that we update as we see changes in the world and on the ground. You can't ignore hybrid approaches. And I just came back from a conference and um, as a professor, you know, when you go to conference, you'll go to vendors tables where you see different products that marketed to educators. And so I would leave my contact information and their approaches. Next, they email you. Next, they start phone calling you. And next in a representation, uh, a rep from the company shows up at your, your school when you ignore the emails and the phone calls, right? And we can't help but uh, think that terror organizations work the same way. We can't just think of them only online. They may be using hybrid approaches where there's an online contact, but then a, a network on the ground might be brought in to uh, seal the contact or seal the connection, you know? So... Um, we have to think in hybrid ways because we know terror and violence organizations are thinking this way. 
Coming back to social media technology, what's about the algorithms? Um, there are some sort of um, articles and some people are talking that radicals, uh, extremists and terrorists, they might even manipulate those algorithms to attract the vulnerable populations like young people, uh, people who are, you know, clicking on some banners and, and they go to whatever links, you know. So how does it work in the practice? Mm -hmm. It's a good, it's a great question to think about. Um, I, I love that question about the manipulation. And the first thing I actually think about before I think about manipulation, I think about exploit, exploiting, um, you know, in the sense that I think uh, violence and terror organizations are exploiting in some ways features that already exist. You know, there's an argument out there and it's a controversial argument. Um, some people believe it, some people don't, that there is what's called uh, algorithmic radicalization. I don't know if you've heard it, but it's this idea that social media platforms by their algorithms, some of them are already set up to drive us to more and more intense or you might even say extreme content over time, right? Uh, some people say this is a very real thing and we see, you know, this is a step this is an aid to the process of radicalization for some people. And other people say, you know, this, you know, we're, we're grasping at straws with this. But the idea is, you know, and people have talked about this in relation to like uh, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation talked about, you know, how uh, you reported on how YouTube and other, and other platforms have used uh, introducing more and more extreme content over time. You know, for instance, they spoke, the, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation has reported on how this uh, phenomenon has potentially played out in the promotion of what's called the manosphere. The manosphere is this idea that online there's a fervent, uh, fervent growth of anti-feminist and misogynistic groups, right? And these groups overlap with white supremacy, yeah? And that on, on certain social media platforms, you might be seeing users who might have, you know, uh, right of center views, more conservative views, especially young male, young male uh, consumers being driven in, in a more extreme direction towards manosphere type groups. Like for instance, one offshoot of the manosphere, um, manosphere phenomenon is something called incel culture. This idea that uh, men, uh, this extreme idea, this you know, very extreme idea that men are, uh, are some ways at the mercy of women uh, and and it's, this insult culture is actually used to fuel a very misogynistic, very violent sort of culture of um, regarding women as, you know, uh, uh, objects to be sort of uh, treated violently or sort of uh, even enslaved. I don't think it'd be a extreme to say that. And there was actually a young man in uh, Plymouth, England. He was only 22 years old and he shot uh, six people, including himself, after being convinced at 22 by this incel rhetoric that he was too old to find love and he was at the mercy of uh, uh, female overlords in some way, or very extreme, very dis disordered thinking, yes. But attacks like this have taken place in Canada, the US, Europe, you know. So I guess um, there is an argument out there that algorithms might be inadvertently helping extremism. So extremism might be exploiting this, this argument. I, I think this, you know, the, the critique of this as being a controversial idea and, um, you know, there may be something there. I think there is a need for more data in this area. Um, in other sense, it's it's possible to speak about uh, exploitation of loopholes, right? For instance, making content that can fly below the radar, 
right? Um, and I'll talk a little bit about that in terms of human creativity. Matthias and Kingdon, uh, two researchers, talked about how uh, human creativity is a factor at play here, how, how uh, terror organizations and violence organizations are adapting content, right? So for instance, the Christchurch mosque attacks that I talked about uh, earlier, it's been you know, really impossible to remove this because people keep taking pieces of this horrific content and embedding it in different ways so that it can you know, evade uh, algorithms and slide through you know, traditional detection methods, right? Um, <clears throat> human, human creativity will always find a way to, to, to make something work, they argue, right? Um, you know, the Global Network on Extremism Technology talks about things like, you know, how um, even when we have human, humans in the loop, which is something Matthias and uh, Kingdon uh, recommend, you know, having human beings, in addition to, to technological uh, uh, monitors, that, you know, there's a lot of stress that human monitors face. They, they go through something called vicarious trauma, whereby seeing, you know, whether it's seeing the exploitation of children sexually or violent terrorist acts, they're, they're, they're being subjected to a lot of vicious, uh, violent content, and it can cause them to become traumatized in ways and, and experience stress and mental health injuries, um, you know, that we have to be aware of. At the same time, uh, when we're talking about algorithms, which is the technological side of the component, you know, we have to be aware that, you know, algorithmic, algorithmic systems are set up to, to sort of work in some ways like the human mind. I'm, I'm very uh, grossly simplifying it when I say that, but I guess what the point I'm trying to make is that some of these algorithmic systems can sort of represent aspects of racism, classism, sexism. Uh, researchers have been looking at how the isms have been uh, finding their way into algorithms, unfortunately. So, you know, if we're looking at developing better AI and more uh, bias resistant AI, we should be looking at, you know, diversifying, you know, culturally diversifying the workforce that contributes to AI, AI technology. Gordon, you mentioned AI, and I think it's time to, to go for the second section, which is about detection and monitoring. And Let's, let's continue with the AI. You know, many people, they ask, how is it possible that big corporations like Facebook, Google, they all employ AI, but this AI has some limitations to detect terrorist, uh, radical or extremist content online. Why is it like that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, a researcher named McDonald who works for the Global Network on Extremism and Technology talked about several of the techniques that, you know, are able to uh, potentially evade AI, you know, something like um, something as simple as, and I, I love playing with images. I love uh, sort of creating pastiche photos, bringing different images together. You know, I, I love playing with that technology, but violence and terror organizations are adept at using it. So they'll obscure images. They may use very low tech things like cropping or filtering uh, pictures to sort of obscure what's being pictured, you know, such as a, a terror flag or an image of a violent attack, right? Um, in some cases, it, it could be as simple as using the, the writing function within the editing software that's very basic to just squiggle or doodle across uh, that make um, content difficult or more difficult for algorithms to note or pick up. You know, in some cases, it's using watermarks or laying images over um, terrorist content so it's partially obscured or it's visually, you know, it's it's not as um, easily detected by AI. 
in other ways, people are being very stealth. You know, sometimes it's a person will make reference to, for instance, a controversial, and I'm going to keep it generic here, controversial terror leader, whether that be religious, secular, whatever. Um, and they'll take some quotes from that person's work, maybe not ones that, you know, are directly attributable to um, espousing hate or violence or acts of terror. So as a, in a way, they're, they're publicizing or promoting this person in a sort of a liminal way so that, you know, it, it introduces people to the, 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 the thoughts of the ideologies of this person without hitting hard with um, terror right off the bat. Other ways we see, you know, sometimes we see um, symbols that would be mundane or generic in other ways. For instance, something like uh, a pointed upwards right finger, you know, being used by some terror groups to single, you know, uh, a certain affiliation with God or a certain religious belief, right? So it, it just looks like a right, you know, right hand pointed upwards to the sky, a pretty simple emoticon. Um, but really it could have, it could become embedded with terrorist, uh, terrorist meaning take on terrorist meaning. It's a floating signifier. Um, network tagging, you know, um, extremists feed off of each other. So you see, you know, um, you know, different terror groups with different orientations sort of um, supporting each other and tagging each other's content. So as you remove one, you may not be aware of another network that's also publicizing that, that work. And when we say it's a grassroots effort, you know, we can't deny the fact that a lot of this is happening at, at the individual level, right? You know, Facebook has, has uh, been increasingly finding people with 500 friend connections, right? That's, that was at least recently the maximum allowable by Facebook. But what they were finding with pro-ISIS accounts was that individual users, individual users were um, maxing out at 5,000 friends because they're actually using individual accounts to serve as, you know, these, these, swarm, these swarm spreaders of extremist ideology and other things like um, outlinking, outlinking, everyone's seen something that's outlinked, I think. Um, my students, when they go look for uh, an inexpensive textbook to use for a class or a reading book to use for a class, they sometimes start on legitimate sites, but get linked to, you know, piracy websites where <clears throat> books are being illegally sold or pirated without giving profit to the company or to the authors, right? And, you know, we're, we always have, this, you know, we would always have discussions in class about just be wary of where you're ending up. You know, the same thing works with violence and extremist organizations. You know, you might not start with an ISIS publication like the Al-Naba newspaper on a mainstream platform, but, you know, you end up uh, going through a series of links and ending up someplace like that. You know, um, we all have been, we've all had the experience of being on the internet and starting in one place and going through a series of what you, we could call rabbit holes or outlinks and ending up somewhere very different and wondering, how did I actually get here? It's no different. Uh, violence and terror organizations use this well. Another, uh, another technique is using, um, you know, modifying the spelling, playing with uh, language, you know, playing with whether a message is written all in one language, whether the syntax is off, the punctuation's off, the grammar's off, using emojis to stand in for words, whereas a message, you know, that was written all in words and espoused something hateful might be targeted by an algorithm. A message that's more broken up because their syntax is off and emojis are inserted in different languages and the letters are mixed around could evade uh, uh, an, you know, our, uh, an algorithm or an AI monitoring system, potentially. There is one fancy term, cross-jurisdictional collaboration. And it's, it's quite important because when you have Facebook, 
Facebook has different rules in the United States, in some European Union countries, in Africa, in Asia, but it's one company. And when I was uh, lecturing about counterterrorism, I showed some, let's say, e-magazines or, or newsletters, you know, being on Facebook and when students ask me why they are still there, why they can't just take them down. I said, because there are different jurisdictions. It's not that easy to do it. So, so how is this topic at the moment? Maybe you can tell us about some trends in this area, how it's evolving. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the, my entry point into this discussion is through my studying of how um, terrorist groups use social media to fundraise. So I've, I've looked a lot at policy in that area, if that's okay for me to speak about. Um, so, you know, there have been um, lots of uh, collaborations between governments across the world, plus private organizations, plus, you know, civil, civil, uh, civil organizations where they're looking at ways that we can work across, you know, large, large uh, areas that encompass many different countries, many different jurisdictions and have, you know, have, have effective impact. And it's been, it's been difficult. It's really been difficult. Like I look at policies like uh, the financial action task force that was created by the G7 in 1989, way, 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 way far removed from where we are right now. And it's actually grown into a policy partnership between Facebook, what was known as Twitter, but now is called X, and you know, under just under 200 different countries. Uh, and it sounds like a great partnership, right? So, you know, one, 190, 200 countries, uh, the major players in the social media world. Uh, but at the same time, it, it, it hinges, its effectiveness hinges on things like how willing is the industry? Uh, how able is the industry to police this content, right? Um, and how willing, you know, are our local governments and local um, local uh, policing uh, able and equipped and funded and trained and able to sort of tackle uh, the prosecution of uh, individuals who violate uh, local laws, right? I've also looked at things like the terrorist financing, finance tacking program. It was originally conceived by the U.S. right after 9-11, but it was expanded to, to partner with the European Union and give it more of a global reach, right? Um, but, you know, as the technology evolves, you know, as, as this organization is trying to track terrorist funding, um, new loopholes emerge, right? New techniques and new, new methods of evasion emerge. And there are loopholes and laws that allow some terror organizations to sort of slip around. Uh, I looked at uh, organizations like the Strengthening Internal Security and the Fight Against Terrorism Group, uh, sometimes referred to as SILT in France. It, it came about, I think it was first introduced uh, for debate in 2015, but then was passed in 2017. And it's been a very controversial law, right? It, it's um, Some people um, liken it to the Patriot Act in some way, and that allows for monitoring of digital and wireless communications. But it's also been linked to human uh, abuse violations, right? And um, critics point to the fact that since the SILT law came into effect, there were, were there have been 25 or more small terror attacks across France from 2017 on. Um, you know, because we're, you know people critics talk about how we're in a post-organization world of terror, right? There's no longer, you know, a centralized organization with a 
a clear figurehead. It's decentralized. It's it's a sort of a form of net war where you have uh, individuals linked together through a network, but no clear leader. You know, it's a leaderless war in some ways. Security Council of the UN. You know, they've been uh, issuing uh, resolutions of twenty. Uh, 2001 onwards, you know, with, um, you know, the, the challenge is always enforcing, you know, the resolutions. And the Tormina uh, statement by the G7 in 2017 looks at things like terrorist content, but also terrorist funding, but it doesn't look at the two together, right? And there's also, we have to acknowledge that there's a great degree of, uh, of technological inexpertise and cultural lag. So the, the, the technology is changing and developing before you know, um, we can keep keep up with it. You know, our, our policing systems and our, our legislation legislative systems were set up for an analog world. Really, we're trying to keep up, but we don't have the expertise expertise or the knowledge or the resources at, always at hand to be able to keep up in that way. Unfortunately, Gordon, there is one question from my students, and it's about. When you register for social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all those, you use either email or you use a phone number. And the question is why there is no a method that the corporation can verify that you exist as a person in the world. Instead, you can basically register like 60 names, 60 fake emails, you can buy a phone number without registration, pay as you go. So, so there is no requirement to put ID card or passport number. So what do you think about this uh, issue? And, and, and what do you think is going to be the future? Will this be stricter in the future or will it remain as it is at the moment? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. That's a, that's, I think that could be the basis for our book, honestly. Um, you can write it. I'm more than happy. Okay. <laughs> That's, that's a great question. You know, one of the things that popped in mind when you're asking the question is um, some work I have done in looking at how social media has been used to uh, topple regimes, like in the case of the Arab Spring, or, uh, you know, in the case of the ongoing conflict in Syria, right, where, where government channels, or, or the government controls all the channels that are available to people. So, you know, not that this is, you know, the, the reason why, you know, it's been possible, but, you know, there, there is a, an argument to be made that, you know, there is a pro-social use to allowing anonymity, right? Um, there was a famous blog that I write about called uh, A Gay Girl in Damascus that came out, you know, uh, uh, from the conflict in Syria where it was a woman who was claiming to be you know, an out lesbian blogger in Damascus, Syria, who was, you know, sort of fighting, fighting against the government regime, right? And uh, Western newspapers were really quick to follow um, these blog posts because, you know, in many ways they were restricted in ways that they could get in and actually find the real story on the ground. So this this blog became wildly popular after a while, right? And even as the blog uh, started to fall apart, and it was clear that it was it was a hoax people were still defending it because they were saying, well, you know, you have to expect that not all the identity details of this person will be, you know, able to be verified because, you know, it would be dangerous for them personally, right? And in that case, it was a hoax. It was a terrible hoax that actually probably um, could also endanger the lives of journalists and bloggers working in Syria 
and actually may have led to the, to the deaths, we don't know, of some of these journalists and bloggers. But at the same time, um, you know, there is a valid argument to be made, you know, despite hoaxes like this, that, um, you know, folks uh, who are fighting for their rights, fighting for basic human rights, fighting for regime change, fighting against dictatorial, violent extremist regimes, um, may have to be afforded some ability to be anonymous online. Um, I think another part of this um, that I thought about as you were telling, asking the question is, you know, the question in some ways might assume that terror organizations are pro-social like we are. You know, we follow the rules, we renew our passports when it's time, we, we protect our personal information. Uh, we, we would never think of uh, using anyone else's personal information. I'd never think of walking across the hallway and taking my colleague's purse off her desk and going through and getting her information and then registering for something online using that. Terrorist organizations, though, we, you know, I've already talked about botnets and how they can, they can uh, spread viruses to control computers and get them to do their bidding. In the same way, you know, we can't expect that terror organizations are not using the techniques of fraud, right? Stealing identity. So even if, if requirements did come into place, there is a strong market for identity information online. Could we see an explosion in that more so than what we're seeing now, which is already intense? You know, um, I think for every action, it's like a, a, a chess game on a global scale. For every action, you know, um, terrorist and extremist organizations are always plotting several steps ahead. I can confirm that because when I was in uh, communication with the Interpol, uh, there were reports about uh, an opportunity to buy identity for like $15 credit card number address name phone number and everything fits it basically goes through the system you know and $15 so imagine you know Al Shabaab you know the terrorist organization in Africa they have like 10 million dollars a month and an income so $15 to pay for identity, it's it's basically nothing, you know. So so that's that's quite interesting. Let's go, let's go to the last, the first section, which is about communication and founding. If I ask you and many Americans, uh, do you have Telegram, WhatsApp, uh, Instagram, all those applications in your phone? Maybe 99% will say, yes, I have one of them or two of them. And the question is, how did encrypted element of those applications that we can communicate and nobody can listen to us or nobody can see what we write in influence the radicalization extremism and terrorism movement what's your opinion yeah i'm so glad you brought this up because uh, when you mentioned those three encrypted platforms like telegram whatsapp and instagram if you were to think about uh, americans I'm, I'm from canada originally but north americans canadians americans uh, which one they would have most likely on their phone. If I picked five people at random and looked at their phones, five young people from my class and said, show me your phone and show me what apps you have, I guarantee you um, all five would likely have Instagram. And, you know, and then after that, um, several would, you know, two, three would have uh, WhatsApp. It's a great way to communicate, especially where I am. I'm actually in um, Brooklyn, teaching in Brooklyn, New York. And I'm in, uh, I'm at a community college in Brooklyn where it's very ethnically diverse, very culturally diverse. Our students come from all over the world, speak, you know, uh, over a hundred languages, you know, uh, it's a it's a high immigrant population. So WhatsApp is a really effective way to communicate in, a, in, in, in for no money across the world, right? 
Um, I've used WhatsApp, you know, when, when traveling through Europe and traveling Europe and traveling through the world. It's really effective. It's 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 cost effective. Um, Telegram, though, if I mention Telegram, um, I get blank stares. I think um, it's uh, it's a massive phenomenon, but it hasn't necessarily come to North America. Not that I have noticed. I you know I hope I. I challenge others to sort of show me evidence that it has, but it really has changed the landscape. I know there were numbers coming out and during the pandemic that were saying that people were signing up, you know, um, like at the beginning of 2021, like a hundred million new accounts for, uh, or, or almost, you know, in those areas for new accounts for Telegram. Um, Signal is also another one that I'm, I have not heard any mention of uh, in North America, you know, Signal was also, you know, galloping ahead during the, 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 the pandemic. Um, you know, it's interesting, you know, the encryption that they use to protect the privacy of users and their communication have also been used in pro-social ways. And I keep returning to pro-social because I also looked at protest movements around the world. Uh, and and pro-social protesters who are seeking real positive change, you know, are using these encrypted technologies to conceal their identities you know, in places like, um, you know, where they're fighting repressive governments or repressive regimes in Belarus, you know, Hong Kong, Japan, you know, not Japan, sorry, Iran, Iran. Um, you know, but at the same time, you know, we see that terror organizations were some of the first to exploit these encrypted technologies. Like, you know, uh, foreign policy talks about how, um, I think it was Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State organizations, ISIL, ISIS, were some of the first users of Telegram, you know, when it first came out, first to, to sort of seize upon it. Um, you know, these platforms, in addition to shielding violence and uh, extremist organizations, also shield child predators, right? It's uh, Telegram, I know, has been banned in Russia, I'm pretty sure, because they wanted actually, they, they appealed to the, the, the founder and said, can we have access? Give us access, and he refused to do it. Uh, but, it, you know, Telegram is actually to their credit, actually agreed to participate with uh, terror probes in different countries, right? Um, so like laws have not kept pace with this encrypted technology, you know? Um, there's a, uh, you know, police officers, there's an international organization of, or international association of police officers or chiefs of police. And they talk about how um, with encrypted technology, a lot of crime um, uh, research stops. It just goes dark, right? Because vital evidence can't be gained you know, um, crime scenes from terrorist attacks, you know, homicides, kidnapping, um, violent actions, right? Leave digital footprints. But when encrypted technology is used, getting the, getting the fingerprints, which in the digital age are the files, the content, it's becoming increasingly difficult with these encrypted technologies. It's, it's really hard to get court orders to sort of get the information that you need. I think, uh, uh, social media platforms are, you know, are increasingly asking for um, law, organ law organizations to go through rigorous sort of uh, steps to get to get uh, lawful court orders to get the evidence that they need. I think they're thinking in terms of the protection of their users and also making sure that there's no exploitation of privacy or the individual user. Um, you know, people have talked about, you know, if we you know, just um, ban encrypted technologies, it could have a, an adverse effect and drive terror and extremist groups further underground. You know, at least with, you know, in, encrypted technology platforms, 
being somewhat willing to work with law enforcement, that there is a chance that they're, um, you know, there's a backdoor, there's a shoot whereby, you know, through legal procedures, terror organizations can be discovered in encrypted technologies. But critics also point to the fact that there's a slippery slope here, you know. How about the fact that, you know, um, they point to the point to things such as the Patriot Act after 9-11, how, you know, the Patriot Act actually allowed the FBI to evade getting a judge to sign off on orders that would allow them access to computer records, phone records, um, you know, uh, credit histories, things like that. And how in, the, in, 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 in like a three year span, there's a there's an analysis by the ACLU that shows in a three year span from 2023 to 2026, that you know, um, the FBI issued something like 190,000 plus of these orders where they're wanting access, All right? So 190,000 in three years, where you're basically delving into people's private information, their phone records, you know, uh, over three years. But then the ACLU points to the fact that they can only find one prosecution that results from that 190,000 uh, cases in which people's privacy was violated, right? So is it really, um, something that is necessary? Is it being used responsibly? So the ACLU, you know, um, also noted how with the case of the uh, Patriot Act, they actually had, as part of the Patriot Act, a bit of a gag order there. So that if you did get one of these letters from the FBI saying, we're going to delve into all your private information, you then couldn't talk about it. You know, you were imposed with a gag order, which actually was, you know, uh, several legal rulings, several courts have found these um, unconstitutional to try to gag someone in this way. And I think that's the, the worry about things like Francis Law, right? That human uh, abuses, human rights abuses will result when we start digging into things like encrypted technology. There could be a slippery slope like there were with, um, some people argue with laws like SILP and the Patriot Act, right? So it's, it's yeah, go ahead. One element I would like to add to your, to your talk is uh, the role of AI because there are articles and tutorials how you can even create your own application for communication. So you and me, we can create our own application based on some sort of offshore servers, you know, so it's much more difficult for the US or European Union uh, or UK to get access to. And then, you know, that magic story starts, you know, who is responsible for what and who can do what, you know, because there are many countries, um, we can say, failed states, where, where, where the order works according to how much you pay. Yeah, you know, those structures are very fragile, they are, they are managed by different people. So I think this is, this is also a significant factor to add, you know, that Unfortunately, you can use AI for good things and also for the bad things. And one of those bad things is this element of communication among radicals, terrorists, and extremists. So that's... Yeah, we tend to talk about AI as being a tool in the fighting of violence and extremism. But anything that can be used to fight violence and extremism can be used to construct it and propagate it, right? So we, we think of AI now with many of the assessments of AI are maybe short-sighted right now because we don't fully grasp it. We're, we're caught up in that cultural lag and we, we haven't really kept pace with the technology. But you have, to, you have to believe that if AI is being used to target and stop and counter violence and extremism, it's also being used to propagate it and recruit and develop scripts and develop content 
that can also um, you know further it further its goals, its antisocial goals. Gordon, what's your opinion about financing and social media? Because I have two examples. The first example comes from uh, I think two years ago when I was lecturing terrorism, and I found a picture. You know, there was a girl or boy. I don't remember. And it, it was from that poor environment with a typical background of the you know house, which is like almost collapsed. And 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 they ask for money for, for for financing, you know, help to this family because of this and that. The second example is uh, using deep fake technology that someone famous in the community set or supported an idea that this is a good thing to you know to finance to help, and people donate it. They donated like three dollars, five dollars. Some of them donated maybe one hundred dollars, which is which is nothing. That it's you know, it's it's not a significant portion of your income, but but if you have like six hundred people donating for two dollars, then you can buy some significant significant uh, tools to to spread terrorism, radicalization, and extremism. So, what's your opinion about social media and fundraising for those purposes? Yeah, you know. Um... Thinking about the the crowdsourcing concept that you introduced, the idea that you know there is um, this idea of fundraising on a small scale, right? We might we might find um, le- legal organizations looking for large transactions, right? But we're increasingly seeing how the cost of terror attacks is going down. So if you had someone crowdsourcing or crowdfunding getting small numbers, even a dollar, two dollars, three dollars from 600, a thousand people, that could be enough to fund some really significant terror attacks. You know, for instance, you know, we think about terror attacks requiring, you know, huge organizations and lots of money, but increasingly, you know, if you look at uh, 76% of uh, terror plots from 1994 to 2013, most of them were relatively inexpensive from a Western standard. Uh, you know, costing under 10,000 American, right? Uh, and recently, if you look more recently at, um, for instance, the Boston Marathon bombings, um, those were estimated to cost only about $500 US by scholars like Shanahan. Um, you know, so that's a really small amount. And using materials that are not, uh, that are not uh, hard, to, had to, hard to source, I believe they were pressure cookers was also you know, damaging uh, sort of content materials put in those. But the, the impact of these, it really illustrates the power of these organizations to capitalize on small, on small uh, actions, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a small cost, small bombs, you know, that wreak, you know, untold human suffering. And the psychological trauma that they, they, they create you know, the, the impact of that lasts for generations, right? For very small actions. You know, the immediacy and the hyper-personal nature of social media makes us susceptible uh, sometimes to appeals when we normally wouldn't. You know, terror groups have used humanitarian charity appeals, right? When you were talking about the falling down house, I'm thinking about the, the humanitarian charity appeals, like where it's being argued to be uh, used to help women and children. But it's really being used, it's really being funded, funneled to fund fighters, right? Um, you know, it's capitalizing too, you know, uh, a, a wonderful 
pro-social, um, socially upright Muslim family who would never give to terror might come across an appeal on their computer screens that says, you know, uh, we need your money, we need your help to sort of help this orphanage in this far-flung part of the world where they lack basic resources. And Islam actually directs its followers, its, its good pro-social followers. Give to charity, give of yourself. It's a very, uh, it's a religion that pieces and that preaches, you know, giving and contribution to others and helping others. Um, you know, family, you know, might be saying, well, we have to give. This is a group of orphans and they need our help, right? But the money then gets, in, you know, inadvertently funded somewhere else, right? Or, you know, someone might find themselves questioning their beliefs if they see one of these deep fakes, right? Because, you know, often with celebrities online, we have these hyper-personal uh, attractions to them. Like, we, we feel like we know them. We, we, you know, we talk about them as though we know their life story, as though they told it to us personally, we know their accomplishments. We know who they are. So when you see a deep fake with someone promoting an organization, people might start to question, you know, their own uh, belief systems. They see, I'm so hyper-connected to this person. Should I be questioning my support for this or my non-support for this idea? Um, it's, it's an interesting phenomenon. Both are interesting phenomenons. And we can't ignore the fact that there's this, um, I write about the Western uh, savior complex about how Western societies sometimes envision themselves as saviors of, you know, uh, folks, uh, people in the in, in the developing world. I, actually, that's not a correct term anymore. We say like rich societies versus lean societies. So the West, you know, views itself as, as sort of being a savior of, of areas that uh, are leaner economically, right? Of individuals from those areas that are leaner economically. And we see this played out all across popular culture in charity appeals and scams will play upon that, you know, um, the, the need that this complex engenders within people to rescue others or save others, um, which in itself, you know, warrants more investigation. The last question for today's interview, Gordon, there are some cases where people might see, you know, extremists or radical banners, maybe some videos on social media, students, adults, you know, doesn't matter who, what to do? What would be your recommendation for the reactions? How to react when I see something on my screen, on my mobile phone? And uh, what would you recommend, um, you know, how to think, you know, when people are surprised, people don't have time. Some of them, they said, mm, I'm not going to bother, you know, I just leave and I, I, I go to work and that's it. So, so what would be your recommendation? How to deal with those situations if someone is going to face them? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's that's a hard question to answer. You know, it's like, what what's the public role in identifying and reporting terrorist activities? I think you see, you know, um, social media platforms already have, you know, mechanisms in place for people policing extremist content. Not just you know talking about terror and violence and extremism, but you know, um, you know, in the U.S. we're 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 in a situation now where there's a a deep political divide, right? It runs down the center of the country. There's a deep polit political division. And we're seeing that um, people are using the platform tools to actually report and, and you know, shut down, you know, violent and extremist talk that's related to sort of extremist views of, um, you know, that challenge basic fundamental, you know, um, rights and freedoms, right? So at the, at, at, on one hand, I think there is a function that is working 
where people are, are given the tools that allow them to police and flag things for greater examination. Um, on the other hand, you know, we run the risk with tools like that. There's always, there's a pro-social, there's an anti-social use. This could also be used to, you know, silence critics, right, who have valid viewpoints, who have valid critiques, who are, are raising important points in society. So I think there is some, some function there. I think um, when it comes to, you know, how could we, um, you know, be more active in engaging this, I think we have to look to our societies as a way to sort of um, develop strategies more than just reporting and flagging. You know, it's, what do we do with the people who um, break away from terrorism and extremism? How do we sort of bring them back into the fold? You know, um, we've seen the phenomenon here in North America where, you know, as, as certain content, certain ideas get increasingly flagged, you know, those users break off, splinter off, and form a group that's insular, and it becomes like an echo chamber, right? So we don't want to see the creation of echo chambers. We want to, we want to as much as possible, sort of maintain an open and active discourse, you know, amongst uh, folks of all different, all different uh, ideologies, right, to, to a certain extent, to a certain extent. But at the same time, um, you know, what is to be made to uh, sort of what sort of function do we have to sort of pull folks back away when those splinters do happen? You know, how do we reintegrate them or, you know, even avoid them from being splintered in the first place? We don't want to shut down a conversation, but we also don't want to propagate violence and extremism at the same time. You know, these, these, these functions get misused, unfortunately, um, but that shouldn't be a reason for not having them. They're good. Uh, they're good safety valve to have in place. I don't know if I really captured the question on that. I don't know how I really answered the question on that, but it's something that I think warrants uh, more examination. I think so much of the discussion focuses on the macro level. You know, um, yeah, I think being vigilant users, being vigilant, and using the tools, and just understanding what the tools mean when they use them, and using them responsibly. Responsibly, I think it's important that um, individuals on the ground develop media literacy like wow you know what are the tools that we're using mean what what do they mean what are the implications of using these tools you know the ideas of um you know some of these tools for example some of these tools limit our, our the length of our messages and, and force us into brevity but what's the implication of that you know what's lost when we do that sort of thing i think encouraging media and technology literacy is really important especially when areas like North America are sorely lagging behind when it comes to STEM and technology education compared to the rest of the world. We can look at some, you know, the, they talk about the BRIC countries, Brazil, India, China, as being leaner economically in some ways than the West, more robust in other ways, but that they really excel in uh, technological and, and, uh, education, STEM education, in the way that uh, uh, richer economies in the West don't necessarily well, with the exception of Germany, Germany has, has sort of uh, tried to keep pace, but uh, have, have not really accomplished. So becoming more technologically adept, becoming more information literate, more technology literate, I think are some ways moving forward. And plus using the understanding, using the tools responsibly. Gordon, thank you very much for your time, yeah. for your insightful remarks and comments and opinions about this very difficult topic. I really appreciate that you accepted the invitation because of your 
I'd say the whole picture that you have and you, that you're dealing with, which is, I think, very relevant for students and for research of terrorism, extremism, and radicalization. And also, I like how you how you express those two perspectives about privacy, about identity, about uh, reporting. You know, because as you said, those tools and instruments can be used both sides, you know, for good and bad purposes. Gordon, thanks again for being on Aya Thinker. Thank you so much. So great to speak with you, Martin. Thank you for inviting me.